0: Well, these young men, the young athletes, they're learning. They're catching up, which is a good thing.
1: Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together
2: make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today we have Representative John Lewis, a civil rights icon and a longtime member of Congress. He joined us to talk about the state of today's civil rights movement and his frustration with the ongoing battle for voting rights. We've come so far. We made a lot of progress. We cannot go back. we got to go forward. The amazing thing about John Lewis is he walks in a room and it's almost like the C's part, the last living speaker from the March on Washington. And for all that attention, he's he's humble, he's soft-spoken, but he also comes with a definite message.
1: He was great at bringing context to some of the work that's happening today. It was fascinating, really fascinating hearing him Talk about, for example, the NFL protests, the demonstrations, the kneeling. These are things that are
2: part of the civil rights movement. This is a man who literally was beaten fighting for voting rights. And now he's watching what he sees as threats by the Trump administration on voting laws. And he reminds people why this needs to be protected.
0: When President Barack Obama was elected, we had a great deal of discussion about being a post-racial society. And people thought and felt that we had sort of turned the corner. But we, we're not there yet. The scars and stain of racism are still deeply embedded in American society. And we will not be there until we have this sort of cleansing. When we were planning the march on Washington in 1963, there was a man by the name of A. Phil Randolph we we'll say over and over again, maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this land in different ships. Yeah. But we're all in the same boat now.
2: I've been covering you off and on well, for almost two decades now. now. And I see you walk through the halls and people just come up to you. They want to shake your hand. That you're. They tell you you're a civil rights icon. To, to have that sort of imprimatur, how does that feel?
0: Well, I feel honored and blessed that a teacher, a mother, a father— little children, want to have a picture, shake my hand, always say, thank you, Uh, I wish you well. It's very moving that I was touched by what I call the spirit of history and influenced by Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. I met Rosa Parks when I was 17. I met Dr. King at the age of 18, changed my life. It hadn't been for Rosa Parks and Dr. King. Uh, I don't know what would have happened to me.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your beginnings here in Washington? Obviously, you were uh, an activist for a long time before you got to Washington, you have been here for 30 years, you've seen a lot of changes. Well, I came to Washington before I came to Congress. I, I
0: first came to Washington in 1961 to go on something called the Freedom Ride. Then, again, to meet with President Kennedy in 1963, June of 63, again on August 28, 1963, for the March on Washington. And to see Washington today, it's a a different world.
1: How so? The young
0: people, they're so smart. They're so gifted. They will use social media, and they will use their education to inject something different and much better into the very vein
1: of America. If social media is kind of like how the movement's working today, what would be kind of like the parallel for for when you were doing your activism? Well, d- during the 60s, we did leaflets and
0: old mammograph machines. And you communicated through churches and and rallies to inform people.
2: Do you think today's message methodology take something away from the way you used to communicate in terms of interpersonal relationships and person-to-person communication? At times,
0: uh, I feel like we're probably a little more effective because we were able to see each other face-to-face. You get involved in, in meetings and, and workshops where you just stay there and you talk for, not just for a few minutes, but for hours until you reach some type of consensus. And that's what we did
1: as students, as young people all across the South. What do you see in today's movement that is similar? And then what do you see in today's movement that you feel could, could potentially learn from the work that you guys did? But what I see happening
0: even today with the athletes, kneeling, we did that. We had kneel ends, uh, at churches. So it's not new. In 1962, when I was 22 years old, we had a kneeling at a recreation center in Cairo, Illinois, before we marched from Selma to Montgomery to dramatize the fact that after kneeling and praying, we were gonna get up and walk from Selma to Montgomery 50 miles. Your order to disperse that march will not continue. And we were beaten and left bloody And some of us were seriously hurt. People see that they disperse. But we didn't give up. We kept our faith. I think people today have to learn to be persistent and never become bitter or hostile, but just keep picking them up and putting them down.
1: Do you see the kneeling continuing?
0: Oh, I, I see what is happening today that it will continue. And it was spurred, not just with uh, professional athletes,
2: because people learning, they're reading the literature, they're watching the video. You said uh, you were surprised by President Trump's response. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say,
0: get that son of a off the field right now, out, he's fired, he's fired.
2: Why were you surprised? I was surprised that I
0: thought someone of his age that should understand that another generation of people use nonviolent protests. Dr. King would say we have a right to protest of what is right in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion. It's protected. The flag is the symbol. So you don't think he got that? I don't think he understood it. Maybe never read anything about it or heard anything about it. There were people who said the Montgomery bus walkout was not the right thing to do, or to sit in at a lunch counter or to go on a freedom ride was not the right thing to do. But we have changed America. We have to educate and inspire and build a mighty movement.
2: Shortly after the Charlottesville incident where a woman was killed, some critics on the right of the demonstrations said that this wouldn't have happened if Martin Luther King were alive. Uh, basically saying that if King were alive, the left-leaning protesters would not engage. Do you think those who might have opposed Dr. King back in the 60s are now trying to appropriate his message for their own purposes? Well, I think there's some people who say, saying uh, maybe you should do it the way Dr. King did it.
0: No one is saying that people— Shouldn't engage in protests, but let it, let us do it in a peaceful, orderly, nonviolent fashion. Respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. We all have a spark of the divine in us. We should never ever abuse it.
2: You were one of the first lawmakers early on to question President Trump's legitimacy as, as president.
0: This is Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. Do you
1: plan on trying to forge a relationship with Donald Trump?
0: Uh, I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. You do
1: not consider him a legitimate president?
0: Why is that? I, I think the Russians participated in helping this man get elected. I don't plan to attend the inauguration.
2: Has your view changed at all?
0: My, my view has not changed at all, if anything had been strengthened.
2: How come strengthened?
0: Well, the investigation that was taken place by members of the House, the Senate, and the special prosecutor. I think the truth will come out. And it's old saying, the truth will set us free. I've had an opportunity to see a lot of presidents. I've never seen a president like this person. How did we get here? I don't know. And, And I asked myself that question, what went wrong in America? I know one thing. During my 77 years, I've seen a better America. When we had a problem with the segregation of public schools in Little Rock, President Eisenhower stood up, he didn't run, and sent federal troops. Local federal courts were instructed by the Supreme Court to achieve admission to public schools without regard to race, and made it possible for my young black students in a central high school president kennedy inspired us
1: race has no place in american life or law those who do nothing are inviting shame
0: and there have been others both democrats and republicans who stood up spoke up and spoke out
2: and thus far you haven't seen that from the current occupant of the white house well
1: i just think we can do better we can do much better what do you think of the young people's movements of today of, you know, Black Lives Matter, of Occupy, I mean, do you feel like they're doing the work that's needed to be done? What are your thoughts? Well, I love seeing people at least in motion. Shoot, shoot, up, shoot, they're learning.
0: Shoot, up, they're going through training. When the sit in started back in nineteen sixty, for almost two years before nineteen sixty, a group of students, black and white college students and some high school students in Nashville, Tennessee, met every Tuesday night studying the life and teaching of Gandhi. We started reading a little comic book that Dr. King helped edit. It was called Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Story. It was 16 pages, it sold for 10 cents. But that little book became our guide, and we were ready. After the students started sitting in in Greensboro, North Carolina, we receive a telephone call and we of the students on store start sitting in
1: in Nashville. What do you make of the students that are sitting in and, and demonstrating at Nancy Pelosi's press conferences on immigration?
0: Report to us any deportations because they're telling us they're not happening. To... Uh, uh, and, and,
1: wait a minute, wait a minute. These are DACA kids interrupting Pelosi, a Democrat who is fighting for you know, comprehensive immigration reform, protecting DREAMers. Is there a disconnect here? Or? I think it's said
0: in effect that these young people was not as informed as they could have been or as they should have been. She's there fighting and standing up and speaking up for them, like most of us on the Democratic side of the aisle. But you never try to say that people should speak up or speak out uh, I remember when uh, I spoke at the March on Washington in 1963, I had all of my hand a few pounds lighter. I have the pleasure to present to this great audience young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He've thought I was too militant or too radical. I said, so you tell us to wait. You tell us to be patient. We cannot wait. We cannot be patient. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want
1: to be free now. We want our freedom, and we want it now. It sounds exactly what they're saying yes, they very no, closely,
0: I should say. And I understand that. I understand that. And I, and I remember people like A. Philip Randolph, yeah. the dean of light leadership, and uh, Dr. King saying, John, that doesn't sound like you. Can you change that? Can you do— And I couldn't say no to A. Philip Randolph. I can say no to Martin Luther King Jr. And we made those changes. So from time to time you have to accommodate for the greater good.
1: Does it feel as vital today what people are fighting for as it did during the Civil Rights Movement? I mean, what are the comparisons? Well, I don't think, I cannot think of anything as powerful and
0: maybe as meaningful as what happened in the height of the Civil Rights Movement. It was all-consuming. It was a great, not just legal issue, it was a moral issue. Saying, in effect, that you cannot come into a place that is open for business simply because of the color of your skin. That you cannot participate in the democratic process. You cannot register to vote. There was a deliberate, systematic effort to keep people of color from registering to vote. And in some places today, People trying to take us back to that period. And you cannot go back.
1: Is it do a disservice to the civil rights movement to equate what's happening, the political debate to to that period?
0: No, I, I, I think we, we learn something and, and we use certain tactics and techniques. We got certain pieces of legislation passed. And if it takes using some of those same tactics and techniques. The movement of the 60s was was a lot of drama. And sometimes you need drama. You have to make it plain, make it real. Uh, I remember when I became a member of Dr. King's church in Atlanta during the early 60s. Sometimes he would be preaching and his father would be in the pulpit or in the audience. And he would say, son, make it plain. Daddy King, we call it. Make it plain, make it real. You need individuals, you need leaders that are prepared to make it plain, to make it real. And that's why we, we had to dramatize it.
1: Is there someone dramatizing now?
0: Well, I, I think the young men, the young athletes, I think they're finding ways to, to dramatize it.
1: Are professional athletes, our
0: new civil rights activists? The imposition. Well, they have a great deal of influence. Sometimes history and fate just bring things together, and I think that's what is happening now.
1: Have you spoken to any athletes, and what would you tell them?
0: I see different athletes from time to time on an individual level, and we've had uh, different teams and different individuals to stop by the office in Atlanta and here in Washington. It's my understanding that some of the young people will be coming to Washington, And uh, I hope to see him and have an opportunity to to talk to him.
2: You recently expressed some frustration with your colleagues about civil rights and the fact that it doesn't seem to be mentioned much in the halls of Washington these days. Why?
0: Well, it may not be the end thing or the calling thing, but as long as people have been kept down or been isolated, been discriminated against because of their race or their color, or what part of the world they come from, we have to assess something. I said from time to time to my colleagues in a very candid and frank way, is that when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to say something, to do something, you cannot afford to be quiet.
1: Do you feel like any of your colleagues understand how important it is to speak out?
0: Oh, yes. But people live in fear that if they say something or do something, maybe they won't be reelected or something could happen to them. I I wish I could take more and more of my colleagues and non-colleagues, both Democrats and Republicans, back to the 40s, the 50s, and 60s. It's just wrong, it's just wrong for people in high position not to use their power and influence to leave things just a little better. Just make a down payment, and let another generation pick it up.
2: Now, a lot of what you've done has been surrounding voting rights and making sure people have the access to vote. Um, As you know, there have been a lot of new voting laws put in place in some states. Um, The White House has a commission on voter integrity. Where do you think the battle for voting rights is going right now?
0: Well, I think there is an effort under the guise uh, and fraud which doesn't exist in many states in the South and some in the Midwest, just trying to make it harder, more difficult. Maybe we should come up with a law that when you become 18, you automatically register, like you register for the draft we had at one time. We just need to open up the political process and let everybody come in.
2: Now, you're a monuments man. You've had a hand in some of the biggest monuments built in Washington, the King Memorial, the Smithsonian African American. Why are those monuments so important? It is
0: important that we leave monuments that will serve as inspiration, serve to educate for generations yet to come, and serve to inspire people to do better much better. When I was growing up in rural Alabama during the 40s and the 50s, I would travel to Tuskegee University, it was called Tuskegee Institute then, and see the handiwork of Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver. And I just felt that people should be able to learn and study, walk into a museum, into a library, in 1956, when I was 16 years old with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went to the public library in the little town of Troy, Alabama, trying to get library card, trying to check out some books. And we were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only and not for coloreds. So I never went back there until July 5th, 1998 for a book signing of my first book. And hundreds of blacks and whites showed up and they gave me a library card. I think every child should be able to learn, to grow, to be inspired.
2: What do you make about this move to uh, remove Confederate monuments?
0: Well, it's my my feeling, I think we should find ways to take many of these monuments and statues and and put them in a a museum.
2: What happens to Stone Mountain? That's a big monument. That's a huge monument.
0: It's going to be very difficult, almost impossible. But maybe we should put Martin Luther King Jr. and some others up there, integrate, desegregate Stone Mountain.
1: (laughs) You'd be okay with keeping the uh, Robert Lee and everyone else there now,
2: but you would like to add?
0: I I think we should add. It would be almost impossible in in Georgia to subtract, so let's just add.
2: But when you drive past that monument, what goes through your mind?
0: I just said Stone Mountain. When I fly from Washington to Atlanta, I can look down as a matter of fact, I can be in my office in downtown Atlanta and uh, and see Stone Mountain. Is that a hard look? No, it is there. You know, it's, it's 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 a mountain. We're not going not going to blow up that mountain. You know, it's part of Georgia.
1: Do you understand people's feelings about, you know, the carving there that Yeah, I do
0: understand it. I do understand it. I think there should be discussion, debate. How can we enhance it? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe Jimmy Carter and Dr. King show up at the same time.
2: You you mentioned earlier about the progress and and perhaps regression that this country has made over the years. Where do you think we are in that sort of peak and valley? Are we in a in a valley right now, or are we in the middle of the hill, or where do you think we are? Well, we're not up the hill. You're not quite
0: in the, in the valley, but just some place between, I would think. But there could be some intervention that would take us there at a much faster
2: rate. What's that intervention?
0: Leadership. Leadership.
2: You do uh, an annual pilgrimage to the Edmund Pettus Bridge to commemorate Bloody Sunday. Uh, You've invited Speaker Ryan. You've invited uh, uh, Steve Scalise. You've invited a lot of Republicans. Have you reached out and invited the president?
0: I I have not. Right now we, we are discussing and talking about what are we going to do next March uh, in terms of going back. If he would like to come, you know, that's left up to him. I think he will learn a great deal by going to Montgomery, to Birmingham, and to Selma, because many of the individuals that were involved will be around, and they can tell him. He can walk through steps of history and maybe be inspired.
2: What do you think progress looks like under President Trump?
0: Oh, I don't know. I think a, a president should uh, be inspiring, uplifting, be a builder of men and women, uh, inspire children, our young people.
2: What's on your agenda for the next year? What, what do you want to get accomplished in the next year?
0: Well, I, I would love to see us fix the voter anxiety right? and open up the political process. Just open it up. George W. Bush supported the renewal of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. I believe every extension President Reagan supported it. We shouldn't fear the American people.
1: Is there someone that you're looking to work with to get stuff done?
0: Well, I'm looking forward to working with my colleagues, both Democrats and Republicans, with individuals in the religious community, the labor community, the academic community. I spend a lot of time talking to students. And a lot of young people come to my office. They're young children, and they sit on the floor. I get down on my knees, I get on the floor with them and talk with them, they ask me questions. I, on one occasion, I was speaking in a little library in uh, San Diego, and a young lady, about nine or 10 years old, she said, Congressman, she said, why are you so awesome? <laughs> and I didn't have an answer for it. And I just said something like, I just try to help out. I'm not awesome. As Dr. King said on one occasion, we must learn to live together. If not, we will perish as fools. We may not get there in my lifetime, but we as a nation and as a people, we will get there.
1: And what does that look like?
0: We will have an America at peace with itself. We will abolish the whole concept, the whole idea of putting someone down because of the race, the gender, or sexual orientation. Today, the signs that I've seen growing up in Alabama and seen in Georgia, they're gone, and they will not return. Our country is a much better place, and I think we are better people. But we have our ups and we have our downs, and we'll get back there. But I think the young people, the children, will help us get back there. We will not stop. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today.
1: Thanks again
2: to John Lewis for being here, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at McClatchyDC.com slash MM. The show is produced and edited by
1: Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be
2: back soon with more Majority Minority.